right? We see that they are experiencing garden living at its finest. But as the book of Jeremiah puts it, the entire created order would soon experience utter shock and desolation as it watches the crown jewel of God's creation fall victim and be deceived by the serpent. It's kind of in the same way that if you take a child up to a tall building, you could almost convince that child to jump off willingly only if you make them believe that they have wings, right? And it was the same with our first mother and first father. They believed the lie of Satan, and they jumped from that building, which was perfection and relationship with God, only to find on the way down that they had absolutely no wings at all thus landing them in sin. And then for the next thousands of generations, every single human being that has been born on this planet walked in the same footsteps as our first parents. We also jumped off that building, believing that we could really find our satisfaction and our heart's desire in other things. The book of Jeremiah also says that we traded God, who is the fountain of living waters, so that we can dig our own wells that are broken in the first place. Because of our wilderness living, we developed into a community that is categorized by dry and lifeless bones needing resurrection. Because we see and see in scripture that a skeleton can't do anything. It's completely dead. But all the while, when things seemed absolutely hopeless for humanity... God was up to something all along. A plan to save his people from their deadness was underway. A savior was coming. A Messiah was prophesied and a prince of peace was promised to us. The God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, was coming. And he was coming to do one of the most incredible things that could ever be done in creation, which was to die on a cross for sinners. Jesus Christ was coming to be pierced. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to build a case for the biblical answer to the question, why did Jesus need a body at all? I mean, as we discussed, we're not the best, right? And I can attest to that because I have the knees of like a 200-year-old. So, like, when I go upstairs, I'm reminded every day that, like, our bodies are breaking down. They are failing. So why would the perfect king of the universe, eternally existent, assume a human body at all? And I think this is important because if we're going to experience the joy bodily from the gospel, we need not rush past the acts that Christ committed in his body. So... What we're going to do is there's two answers to this question that we're going to walk through um, this morning. We're going to take them one at a time. So answer number one, Jesus needed a body to fulfill the plan of God for salvation as it's prophesied in the scriptures. So if you guys could open your Bibles for me to the last book in the Bible. It's hard to miss, the book of Revelation. And I am so sorry, I did not find the page number for that, so you're on your own on that, on that one. That's my fault. 
So the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, um, wrote the book of Revelation. And what this book is representing is a vision that God gave John depicting the times to come or the end times as it's been put. And in chapter 13, he uses a description of Christ that seems to me completely strange and foreign. At the end of verse 8, Jesus, or John calls Jesus the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And that word from can often be retranslated into before. So the text would read, the lamb of God who was slain before the creation of the world. And that phrase there at the end, foundation of the world, every other time it's used in the scriptures, it's referencing to as far back into eternity as you can go, which eternity never ends, so that's forever. So, in the mind of God, the second person of the Trinity was the sacrificial lamb that would be slain for us. And this is before Adam and Eve even sinned in the garden. This was before the garden even existed, right? That's what we see. And because this is true, because Christ didn't assume the title of sacrificial lamb, but he was always there, I have a secret that I want to share. And this is a Wellspring exclusive. You're not going to get this anywhere else this morning. Because that's true, the garden didn't catch God off guard crazy, right? Like God wasn't sitting up in heaven with the angels and was just kicking it with them and was like, Michael, you see? Gabriel, are you catching what's happening? They, they haven't even been down there for 10 minutes and they're already screwing stuff up. Like, what are we going to do? They're like, I don't know what you're going to do. You're God. You created them. He's like, well, then, like, I mean, let's think. We can do no, not that, not that. Oh, Jesus, he can go, right? Jesus, you good to go? And yeah, all right, cool. Like, that's not what happened in eternity past. The plan of grace was set in motion before God even uttered the words, let there be light, before the world was even created. So why did Jesus need a body? Because he didn't become the sacrifice. He was always the lamb that would be slain. And to be slain, you need a body. So... We, didn't, we don't just see that God talks about Jesus' plan in eternity past. We see it fleshed out in actual real human history. If we look through the Old Testament, I mean, it's completely chocked full of references and word pictures and symbols and comparisons pointing to Christ. And I don't know if you guys remember, but we did a sermon series not that long ago called Jesus in the Old Testament, where we went through and looked at some of these. I just want to review some, and starting back in the garden. After they fall, God curses Adam and Eve, right? And then who knows what he did next? Someone just, like, shout it out to me. What did God do next? Yes. Yes. It says that God clothed Adam and Eve with skin. Now, again, I don't know if you knew this or not, but back in the day, he couldn't like just 
walk into a Lululemon store for Eve and go to American Eagle for Adam's like, hey, I need two larges, two skins. You know, God had to sacrifice an animal to cover the sins, the nakedness, and the shame of Adam and Eve. And so we see this first picture of one that would be innocent, that would be sacrificed on the behalf of other people. The next one is the story of the Exodus, where Moses, or God raises Moses up to go save his people from slavery, and he gets there, and Pharaoh's not having it. Um, They war back and forth, you know, I will not let your people go, that whole thing. And so God decides to send plagues on the land of Egypt. And the very last plague is the one that I want to look at. Um, God vows that he will kill every last firstborn child in the entire land of Egypt. But he gives specific instructions to the people of Israel. He says to take a lamb. Do not break its bones. It needs to be spotless and without blemish. And you are to kill the lamb and take its blood and wipe it above the doorpost so that when I come and my justice is served to Egypt, that you will then be passed over. So the Israelites for the next thousands of years would celebrate the Passover, not really understanding what they were actually doing. They didn't realize that this was just a dress rehearsal, that this was pointing to that lamb that would come and sacrifice his own blood on our behalf. But my favorite one in all the Old Testament would have to be the story of Abraham. Abraham, you know, wife Sarah, Sarah's past childbearing age, God's like, don't worry about it, I'm going to promise you you're going to have a son. And so time goes on, they get this son, um, the one who was promised, and they are absolutely overwhelmed with gratitude. And then God, sometime later, um, comes to Abraham and is like, Abraham, you remember that son? Yeah, Isaac, remember him? Yeah, the one like took hundreds of years to get here, like all that. You remember? Yeah, I'm going to need that back. You're going to have to give him back to me. You're going to have to kill him. I mean, could could you imagine, like, the heart of Abraham in that moment? Like, God, I thought, you said, how am I going to be the father of Israel if I don't have any kids? Like, you promised. But we see that in Scripture, he just goes, and no time is wasted. He takes his son Isaac, takes him up Mount Moriah, and binds his arms, lays him on an altar that he built. And as he's preparing to slaughter his own son, the one that was promised to him, an angel of the Lord comes and stops Abraham and says, Abraham, don't harm the boy, for God will provide the sacrifice. And then you look off in the distance, and there's this ram that's caught in a bush by its horns. So Abraham goes, receives the ram, and kills it instead of his son. And then 2,000 years later, God would take his son, his only son, the son who was promised, up that same mountain, and the hand of the executioner on that day would not stop. And now we arrive at the answer to, our final answer to our question. Why did Jesus need a body? So that he could die. God is eternal, right? So that's kind of a problem. How can something that is eternally existent 
die? Well, answer, it can't, right? And so by very nature, Jesus had to assume a body to die. And I want to put a scripture up on the slide here. Hebrews 9, 22 had this to say. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so if there's going to be forgiveness for us, life from death from our bones, Jesus needed a body that can actually bleed real human blood. And here's what John Piper, pastor, had to say about the body of Christ in this regard. It says, the incarnation, which is God taking on flesh, the incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for nails. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to press through. He needed a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for the spikes. He needed a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks so that Judas would have a place to kiss. And he needed, needed a brain and spinal column so that the exquisiteness of the pain can be fully felt. This lamb that was without blemish wouldn't be blemish-free for long as he makes his way to the cross. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning, looking at the pierced body of our Savior. The early theologian Origen calls the death of Christ the utterly vile death of the cross. The great writer Roman and Roman statesman Cicero stated that the crucifixion was the supreme penalty exceeding burning and decapitation and gruesomeness. The writers of the Old Testament um, aren't really forthcoming with the physical details of our Lord's execution, but I think that we need to spend some time here. Because having a better understanding of what Jesus endured will allow the glory of the gospel to shine all the brighter. And so just a forewarning, there's no pictures, nothing to look at, but we are going to get pretty graphic here for a minute. So Roman crucifixion was started with a process called scourging, where the individual, Jesus in this case, would have been bound by his hands to a pole in the ground. And I know you see pictures of Christ and he has a loincloth on, but historically speaking, he was completely stripped naked, thus making a reference back to the garden of that same shame that we as human beings feel. He would have been stripped naked, and the Roman guards would have grabbed a weapon that's called the cat of nine tails, which essentially is a whip-like instrument that on the ends of these leather strips were fastened pieces of bone and metal. And then they would begin to beat the victim. With just the first few strikes, the injuries would have been severe. Could you imagine? Skin will be ripped from the side of Jesus like ripping a piece of paper from a notebook. Not only would the pain just be intense, but the blood loss would be unexplainable. At this point, you would begin to see and expose the skeletal bones and muscles and tendons 
from being whipped repeatedly over and over and over again. Jesus was beat almost to the brink of death. It's been said that he endured 39 lashes, um, and it was said from the Roman perspective that 40 lashes was enough to kill an individual. Because most people that endured this practice didn't even make it to their cross. They died right then, right there. And somehow, Jesus endured this. Next, after this beating, Jesus was taken away and a crown of thorns was shoved onto his scalp. And now, just another picture for you. Don't think of like a rose bush that has those little tiny thorns. In the Middle East, in that area where the crucifixion happened, they would have got it from a bush that had about an inch and a half long thorns. And they took this and they shoved it in the scalp of our Savior, mocking him, thinking that he wasn't a king at all. They didn't know that they were actually executing the real king of kings like we sang about just a minute ago. Then, after further mocking, the same way that Isaac had to carry his wood up the mountain, Jesus would have been made to carry his cross up the hill. At this time, again, a voice of an angel would not come for Jesus. He was placed then on the horizontal portion of the cross beam and his hands would be tied. And they would begin to drive nails, pinning him to the wood. And again, contrary to popular belief, the nails were not put in his hands. The human body from a physical standpoint doesn't have, or the hands don't have the capacity to hold the weight of a human body. So if they put it in his hands, it would have ripped straight out. So what they did is they shoved it through your arm, through the wrist, in between the two bones, so that he had something to hang his body weight on. And I don't know if you know anything about the human anatomy, um, but there are a ton of nerve endings that run through the wrists, and those would indeed have been severed. So the pain is just unthinkable. They pin him to the cross, and then they take two spikes, and instead of putting his, their feet, his feet on top of each other like you see most often, they would have put it through the sides of his ankles into the wood. And at this point, the part of crucifixion proper would have begun. And so if anyone made it to this point, the only way you kept surviving was if you had enough energy to push off of those nailed ankles and pull up on those nailed wrists to take a breath. Because the way they crucify you in this position, you don't have the capacity to breathe without pulling up and then dropping back down. And you would have done this over and over and over and over again until you had no more strength to do it. At this point, you would then have to become your own executioner because you then would have stopped and suffocated. Jesus, according to the scriptures, endured this for six hours. Six hours. Most of us can't even wait in a drive through line for more than 10 minutes without being frustrated. But here's our sacrificial lamb taking our place, enduring this for over six hours. 
it's un, I, I, it's hard to think about. And unlike our first fallen parents, Jesus didn't fashion fig leaves for himself. He didn't go run and hide. He willingly and joyfully, key word, embraced the cross. The scriptures say, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. But this joy came at a cost. And then our Savior took his final breath by saying, it is finished, and he died. The plan from all eternity has been completed. The Savior came. He did what he was meant to do. But what was it all for? I mean, honestly. I mean, how could something that's so gruesome be any sort of good news for us? Well, I've talked a lot. I want to see what the Bible has to say about why. Start putting those up. We're going to rapid fire through these. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds, we are healed. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes, again, we are healed. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the good news of Good Friday. Of our Savior, call it good. Because even he was thinking of you and me. That we would be reconciled back to God. That our rebellion against him would be wiped clean. That he bore our nakedness and our shame on the cross so that we would have peace with him. That we can return, return back to garden living again. To separate us from the love of Christ. This is the good news of the pierced body of our Savior. Was that it was done on your behalf. So that you would be reconciled from you guys. Pause for a moment and just speak personally. Now, what's going on in your eyes? You hear this. I mean, really, we need, really need to think about when we talked about before in earlier sermons that you and act like nothing has, when you hear